Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 562nd episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I'm Mike Allen. I'm a family doctor and the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta, and that's where we found our next two esteemed colleagues and guests who are here to talk about stage two, part two of, now is this a trilogy, a quadrilogy? What are we talking about? How many How many episodes are we going to do the, stop the using bilipid guidelines? Stop using big words, words Mike. <laughs> I'm making them up as I go. I know, James. I know. Just like, just like the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Mike and Adrian, please introduce yourself and then we can get going. Hi guys, uh, Mike Colbert, uh, Royal Family Physician, Peace River, and Professor at the University of Alberta. Super happy to be here. And I'm Adrian Lindblad. I'm the Clinical Evidence Expert Lead for the College of Family Physicians of Canada and an Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Med at the U of A. And in our previous podcast, we talked about how we developed the guideline, and then we went all over the whether or not to test target levels and all that sort of stuff. So if you're really interested in that, go back to the previous podcast. But now we're going to jump right into, uh, I guess, treatment or at least medications. And uh, you guys are going to run us through all of the stuff that we found with when we when we reviewed all the information. Absolutely. So as Adrian said, we did eight systematic reviews. Actually, it was initially seven. We weren't really sure what an omega-3 was. And we actually split it omega-3, so DHE and EPA or EPA alone. So that was interesting. And we learned something like, what the heck is an omega we did 76 systematic reviews and interesting, all of the classes and, and since 2015, two classes specifically, well, three classes have emerging evidence. Is that in my bit more evidence? PSK9 is new. And obviously, uh, EPA or Cosapent, a new large randomized control trial, or, well, two of them, um, looking at EPA alone. So we looked at, tried to look at, at systematic reviews of systematic, we did systematic reviews of systematic reviews. Interestingly, bile acid sequestrants have been around forever. There was a systematic review on harms, but not on efficacy, so we had to go right to the RCTs. We thought going into systematic reviews would probably be the right way to go. Uh, and then lo and behold, we find stuff like P PCSK9 inhibitors have 26 systematic reviews, and there's really only two randomized control trials. And so while we were trying to be efficient and trying to go really do this in a high level, highest evidence possible, I think going forward, we'd probably, Adrian, I'd be interested in what you think, probably go to make systematic reviews of RCTs, you know, do it ourselves and, and go that way. So so we looked at these eight classes, 76 systematic reviews, six RCTs. And, and as Adrian said, we did the process was done correctly. We as we all struggle with grade because even though it seems very objective, it's a bit subjective, but we did we graded all of our levels of evidence. And really important to know that while we looked at really the keys were all comers, so primary and secondary prevention, we're focusing on primary prevention. And I just want the, the readers to know that, you know, like we were, we had high level of certainty that niacin doesn't work. That doesn't mean when it says high in grade, it doesn't mean it works. It's just high level certainty. It doesn't work. Interestingly, in primary prevention, most of the medications, it was very low or no data. And I'll get into that a bit further, except for statins. We're moderately convinced that what we're showing you and the evidence moderate certainty that what we're finding is real. But just a caveat on some of those other ones that it's either very low, low or no data for primary prevention. So putting them all together, we actually took the median relative risk of the systematic reviews and, and 
to the number that were were statistically significant. And for mace, our, our outcomes, as we said on the last podcast, we looked at mace, all cause mortality are probably our two main. We also looked at cardiovascular mortality. For mace, we found that azetamide overall had about a seven percent relative risk reduction. Fibrates, fourteen percent relative risk, and I'm giving you relatives right now um, for a couple reasons, and I'll get to them afterwards. EPA only beneficial about 22%, PSK9, 16%. Statins, consistently, again, moderate certainty, 25% relative risk reduction. And statins were the only class that showed mortality benefit, about a 9 or 10% relative benefit. So while all those are really important, our, our guideline, while important that we looked at primary and secondary, we focused also on primary prevention, and statins were king for primary. Statins were the only one they showed a benefit of primary prevention, about 25%, and all-cause mortality, again, about not, about 9%. That was so good to see that consistency between primary and secondary prevention for statins. The numbers were almost identical. Correct. Putting them all together. And maybe if we have time, James can, can get into bempedoic acid and how you look at Lack of consistency in that one down the road. We'll yeah. leave that for now. That, that, we we, we yeah, already yeah. did a full. We did a full podcast on that already. So I think. Oh, you did. Oh, yeah, pardon yeah. me. You can, I must have missed that one. <laughs> well, yeah, I think both Mike and I missed it as well. Five hundred sixty-one. So. Yeah, yeah, all the other ones. So, so when we give you some of the, I just give you some nuances of the evidence again. Statins moderate potency, probably about a twenty-five percent relative risk reduction. If you go to high potency, about thirty-five percent relative risk reduction. And again, the only agent that decreases all-cause mortality. So our guideline, not unique or consistent with all ever guidelines, statins are king and statins for primary prevention. Fibrates have a 0 to 14% relative risk reduction in maize. 0% if you add to a statin, 14% if a standalone, and probably related to decreasing non-fatal MIs. Okay. Azetamide. Azetamide, the, the evidence really is added, added to statins. And the large trial, secondary prevention, you know, was extended a number of times, and they said we're not stopping for futility. There really is limited evidence in, in primary prevention or monotherapy. I know we've, and, we've, gotten, we've gotten some questions from people about why did we put azetamide in there, you know, and and it was tricky. Uh, it, now it's a seven percent. Now people need to realize this is a seven percent relative benefit. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so it's you know I I don't know if you guys want to add any more of why we decided to put azetamide because it it's it it the evidence is actually very limited. Yeah, and I think it is. Oh, go oh, ahead, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So no, absolutely. So again, when we have our recommendations, azetamide has no place, and actually all no no non-statin therapy has a place in primary prevention. The only time you may consider this is in secondary prevention, and again, the certainty of the evidence. Uh, very low, you know, and, and again, the caveats, we felt it was important to be transparent and show you the evidence, but we also, we also know that there, there's some issues with the azetamide evidence. Absolutely. Especially for, especially for primary prevention. Yeah. Well, an, an easy way to remember these numbers and it won't, I cost the pants kind of the outlier because it's a bit, um, we're, we're not, I'm at least I'm not, and I might be speaking out of turn for the rest of us here, but I'm not near, I'm not as convinced about its benefit as I am about the others. Um, it just seems like a weird, there's some, there's some issues with the trial. There's some issues with the whole idea of how it works and, and why it should work. But aside from all that, the other ones are 
if you think about it, it's kind of a set of MIB. It's, if it's around seven, PCSK9s are around 15 and then 25 for statins. An easy way to think about it is um, PSK9s are about half as good as statins and uh, set of MIB's about half that good again. So That's a good way to think about it. Yeah, I, that's a great way. And again, all of these PSK9s and Zetamide and Acosapent were added to statins. So again, yeah. it's, and it gives all, like the law of diminishing returns. Again, adding an additional med, nothing has the same bang for the buck as statins. Mm -hmm. PSK9s, again, limited evidence in primary prevention or monotherapy. Primary prevention, the limited evidence in primary prevention were not our classic traditional patients that you and I see in the office. Either FH, and again, our guideline did not, we explicitly left out familial hypoclostinemics. And as some of the listeners may may have seen, some groups are actually calling into question one of the larger trials uh, of PSK9s about the validity of the evidence. Again, low certainty, uh, sorry, very low certainty in PSK9s and primary, primary prevention and really just lack of data. We also know that there's a lot of costs associated as it's uh, delivered in a non-oral formulation. Icosapent and EPA, so, so we also looked at this as, as at the, the large RCTs added to statins, about a 20% relative benefit. Again, this is in secondary prevention. And when we wrote the tools for practice, I think we kind of might have underplayed the potential harms. So the risk of atrial fibrillation, about a 1.5 absolute risk increase and a 1% absolute increase in hospitalization. So for every 100 people that we would put on Icosapent, an additional one would be hospitalized for atrial fibrillation. There's also risk of bleeding about, and the major bleeding is about uh, for every 200, we would put on an additional one. So found that very fascinating and interesting. And as a result, we, we our recommendations will reflect some of the nuances in the evidence. And I think what's important to say is niacin didn't do, didn't do anything. Omega-3 didn't oh, yeah, do yeah, anything. And the yeah, bile, yeah, acid, bile acid sequestrants had no convincing evidence of benefit. So uh, and so they're not there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I should have gone over that. Yeah, okay. the, we found, yeah, no convincing evidence of the benefit of those three uh, classes, niacin, omega-3s and bile acids. Absolutely. No. Good. So pulling it all together, as Adrian has said, it, it's, it's not the lipids, it's who you have. So lipids are only part of it. So we we recommend every time you do a lipid and we hope it's five to 10 years that you would put them in a risk calculator. We we consist we were consistent with 2015 in that we had three cat three categories, and they're as follows. So those that have had calculated 10 year risk of greater than 20 percent, we would recommend discussing a statin. And we we slipped in there the high high intensity statin as we looked at that fairly fulsomely in 2015. In the patients with a 10 year risk of 10 to 19 percent, we used to say moderate. We're trying to get away from that language. We would suggest discussing statins, and at moderate intensity. And, and in our KT tool, we show the different doses for high and moderate intensity. For primary prevention, we recommend it against all non-statin uh, drugs, either monotherapy or combined with statins. In secondary prevention, again, statins were still king. But if additional cardiovascular risk was desired, you, we, we could consider or clinicians could discuss the anticipated or potential benefits, harms, costs, all of that stuff with zetamibe and PSK9s. And we thought due to the potential harms, again, atrial fibrillation and bleeding of a cosipent, we actually thought we would, we actually positioned it after zetamibe and PSK9s. So we're very consistent. I think all of the guidelines are consistent and mostly consistent in the medications that are recommended. 
The veterans group, interestingly, put azetamide and icosapent, and they downgraded PSK9s for questionable long-term safety and cost. So interesting. Again, only for, for secondary prevention. And I'm sure some of you are going, well, don't, it doesn't, you have these risk thresholds. Isn't that like everybody else? No, we're recommending those are discussion thresholds, not treatment thresholds. Absolutely. So language was, you know, we recommend, we suggest, and, and all of it comes back to shared decision-making. And what do you think? We know historically in our practice, we have patients that 9% is too high for them. I'll take it. And I had somebody a few months ago that was about 45% and said, no, I'm good. Can we talk about something else? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, your, your choice. I bring it up and, and you, you decide. And so we try and advise, simplify the evidence to have a discussion and have a patient involved in, in the dis- decision. My lowest ever was three to 4%. Yeah, I called her because it was that level. But she asked me when she was in with her husband and I told her it was three to 4%. She said, I think I'd take something for that. But she only stayed on it for, well, it was less than a year for sure was that was a surprise to me but yeah i remember remember our risks are over 10 years these are over 10 years right so that lady was three to four percent over 10 years different than uh spark tools or atrial fib which annual that's annual yeah that's so that's annual that's so different with spark that's apples and oranges that's not the same that's not even the same that's that's uh that's cherries and um watermelon that's the difference Mm -hmm. there Absolutely. So, so our guideline panel had some ancillary questions, and we're going to highlight a couple of them. You know, what to do with statin intolerance, and what to do with older adults. So, Adrian, statin intolerance. What what did you find? Absolutely. So, common reason why a lot of people quit statins. So, we wanted to know what is the actual incidence of statin intolerance or muscle aches, and we found a meta analysis with twenty three randomized controlled trials and about one hundred and fifty thousand patients who were followed for four years. And the first year that people were on a statin, the incidence of muscle aches was around 15% for people on a statin compared to about 14% for people who were on placebo. And after that year was over, the event rates in terms of the incidence of muscle pains was actually quite similar to about 15%. And they looked at a number of subgroups for this, and they said it didn't really matter if this was a more elderly subgroup or if people were on a more lipophilic statin or whatever the case may be. None of the incidents of muscle pains really changed, regardless of the subgroup that they looked at. Now, statins did increase the mean CK by about 2%, but not enough. We usually care about too much. And the incidence of muscle injury plus a CK elevation greater than 10 times normal was about 7.7 for people on a statin compared to about 4.4 in 100,000 for people on placebo. Now, in addition to this meta-analysis, we have three N of one trials where patients acted as their own controls. These studies had anywhere from eight to 200 patients in them, and they all had a history of statin intolerance. So what they did in these studies is they randomized the patients to three to four cycles of about three to eight weeks of either a statin, placebo, or no pill. And the patients would just go through in a cycle each one of those treatments at a different time. They then asked the patients to rank their muscle symptom scores on a scale from zero to 100, where zero is no pain at all. And of course, 100 is really bad. When they looked at statin versus placebo, there was no difference at all in the muscle symptom scores. The difference we saw was actually if you compared statin to no pill, and the statin patients had a score of about 16 compared to eight for people who weren't on, or who were on no pill, pardon me. So it's really kind of highlights that nocebo effect that we're seeing that people are having muscle pains on a statin or placebo at the same rate. And if you don't give them that, 
uh, any pill, then they don't seem to have a problem. It's this classic nocebo effect. So really the bottom line is that statins are unlikely, unlikely to be the cause of most muscle symptoms, causing muscle symptoms for only about 1 in 15 patients who are complaining about it. The rest is either a nocebo effect or related to something uh, other than the statin. The question then becomes, well, what do we do for patients who are complaining about a statin intolerance? Mike highlighted nicely for us already that statins are the only medication with a consistent evidence of benefit. We don't have any RCTs specifically enrolling statin intolerant patients, although I believe um, we do have that one study that we're going to talk about here today. Um, but in terms of what we do for patients who are statin intolerant, what do we do with them? So our group looked at a number of different options. We looked at using the same statin at the same dose, a different statin, a lower dose or intensity, or even something like alternate daily dosing of statins. And we tried to find the evidence for each of these treatments to see which would be the best in someone who is statin intolerance and the evidence really just didn't help us I would say they either only reported on things like uh, surrogate markers sometimes they didn't talk about tolerability at all there was nothing about long-term uh, major outcomes so there wasn't a lot of, of useful information there what we can say is that for patients who don't tolerate a specific statin regimen due to non-severe muscle adverse effects we really recommend any statin intensity over a non-statin lipid therapy if you have someone who's unable to tolerate or unwilling to try statin rechallenge and primary prevention, we say, well, then you've done all that you can. We do suggest against non-statin lipid-lowering therapy because as Mike had mentioned already, there really is no evidence that other treatments will do anything to reduce your risk of having an event. And in secondary prevention, because the risk is a little bit higher in these patients, we do suggest a discussion of azetamide, fibrates, PCSK9 inhibitors, or that EPA ethyl ester. Um, these, as Mike talked about, have already uh, mentioned that, that these are usually in addition to statins. This is something different here. It's kind of a bit of an evidence-free zone, but we think it's most reasonable to follow this approach. But I, if I remember correctly, I think Mike wanted to, actually probably both Mikes really wanted the suck it up buttercup approach to the, to the statin pain, but... <laughs> <laughs> we didn't put that in the guideline. Yeah, yeah, left that one, those that wording. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Adrian, it's, it's remarkable, before we went in here, you'd see discussions and, and opinion pieces on, we, we have great evidence on what to do for statin intolerance. And when you look there, it's like, wow. So you have clinical, you know, case series or whatever, but, you know, great randomized control trials are lacking. Whether they're actually different or not different, it's probably another question, but yeah, so we're using indirect evidence to try and inform this with a whole bunch of caveats, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Re remarkable. And yet another vitamin D study, I'm sure will be launched, uh, studied yeah. and done next week. And yet <laughs> here's, a, here's a great area that, yeah, it's, it's crickets. Yeah, anyways. So another, another group was, what, what about statins in older adults? You know, we had heard that maybe it works less when you get older. And so basically just the bottom line, in primary prevention, we're fairly, fairly confident for patients between 65 and 75, the statins have a benefit in MACE, whether between 16 and 39%, depending on the age group. And again, primary prevention. Over the age of 75, the benefit is less clear. Well, the, the point estimated in the highest quality and largest systematic review is still on the side of benefit. The 95% confidence interval uh, spans the line of no effect. And so we'd say, yeah, benefit of initiating statins in patients over the 75 years of age is unclear. We know that there's not a lot of patients over the age of 75 in primary prevention trials. We do know that there's a big trial coming out of Australia in the next couple of years uh, that looking at this specific question and also looking at uh, 
in addition to cardiovascular events, looking at dementia, disability, and stuff like that. Just on a, oh, and Adrian will talk about cognition in just a sec. For secondary prevention, the evidence shows that it's consistent, uh, the benefit is consistent, irrespective of the age, including patients over the age of 75. All right, yes, so statins and cognitions. So back in 2015, our guideline did look at the incidence of the effects of statin and cognition and found there's really no evidence of an association between a statin and cognitive decline. However, since then, there's been a number of new studies that have come out looking at this question. There's a systematic review of RCTs. One RCT found the incidence of cognitive decline being about 0.3% in both groups. And three other RCTs ranging from 700 to 2,300 patients of statin versus placebo, again, found no increased risk when they follow patients for about five to seven years. We also have observational studies and systematic reviews of observational studies that have tried to see if there's any association. And we're talking now we're at like 9 million patients of statin versus non followed anywhere from one to 25 years. So a lot of evidence in the observational realm. 16 studies have looked at all-cause dementia, 14 studies have looked at Alzheimer's disease, and interestingly enough, they actually found a reduction in the risk of these incident, of these conditions with the use of statins. And when we looked at vascular dementia, where we thought maybe we would find something there, uh, there's actually no difference in the rate of vascular dementia between statins and no statins. So even beyond that, we can also look at studies looking at cognitive scores, and we have four different systematic reviews comparing statin to placebo, looking at a variety of different cognitive scores, whether it's MSE, a telephone interview, cognitive status, et cetera. Didn't matter if patients were with or without baseline cognitive impairment, there really was no effect on any cognition score with statins compared to none. So really the bottom line is that there's no evidence that statins worsen or improve cognitive function. So I think it's something we can kind of lay to rest now. Yeah, I don't think it's really a thing. or I don't think the concern is really, I mean, I think there was a little bit of noise in 2015, but we really haven't seen or heard clinically much of this uh, lately. So we had we had recommendations for our special groups. Uh, and, and as Adrian said, we recommend not altering statin prescribing for cognitive concerns. For primary prevention, for the patients over the age of 75, we recommend against lipid testing the assessment of risk using calculators. Your astute listeners will say, well, wait a minute, don't the calculators age out at 75? And yes, most of them do. You betcha they do. For those in the older adults uh, under under 75, the area under the curve, maybe Adrian, remember Adrian said the area under the curve in the first podcast was about 75%, uh, 0.75. For older adults, it's about 0.6, 0.62. Okay. So against primary prevention, doing lipid testing, and using a calculator. We recommend against routine initiation of statins for primary prevention over the age of 75, highlighting some of the uncertainty when you get over age 75 to, to statins change MACE, uh, similar to those under 75. We had a caveat, and we do understand that life is not binary, that at 74 and 364, you're good, and, and 75 in three days, it's completely different. So we do understand that we're trying to <clears throat> binarize something that's a continuous uh, Outcome should mention that <clears throat> that statins in the older adults and just older adults in general, we're not talking about long-term care and palliative care patients and, and stuff. And we had some, I had a, uh, a colleague of mine from uh, Chilliwack say, "Mike, does this include my patients that I take care of long-term care?" No, these are, you know, this is the discussion for independent uh, um, older adults. For patients who've had a cardiovascular event over the age of seventy-five, we recommend discussing the risks and benefits of statin therapy. And those that are already tolerating a statin, just because they cross that line of 75, we recommend against just stopping them, stopping the statins because they aged out.
So bringing it all home, we're going to just kind of summarize how we can best use all of this information that we presented in the last uh, two podcasts, this one and the one before, on how to have a conversation with patients and some simple tools to help you in your day-to-day discussions. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing we did is we updated the uh, cardiovascular risk calculator that we had on the BS Medicine website for a long time. So that has been updated and there is a new website for it that you can use to calculate a patient's cardiovascular risk. It's now at decisionaid.ca slash CVD. So you can find that decision aid there. Then we also had a two-page summary of all of our recommendations. And Mike, why don't you walk us through what that treatment algorithm looks like? Sure. Just a couple notes on the update to the calculator. It's nice that you can actually add combined stuff. Mm-hmm. Like so non, non-farm. So you can do I, that just last week. Uh, I had somebody who said, I'm going to do physical activity. And I like that Mediterranean diet. Can you put them both together? What happens, Mike? And I'll say, this is what happens. He goes, perfect. Can you print that off? And I'll take it to my wife, <laughs> the decision maker in the family. And, and then you can add a, a medication on top of that. So we had some limitations of our first iteration that you can only choose one. Uh, so I think it's actually a, a real improvement and, and having multi multitude of uh, combined interventions, which has been helpful. So we do recognize that very few clinicians will read a full guideline. And so we actually we ha- had uh, Samantha Moe, who is an exceptional peer team member, put together, uh, lead the team making a two page KT tool. So if you want to just cut to the chase, it's our KT tool. And basically, we identify who we should screen and when. So again, as Adrian said, uh, males at, for primary prevention, males at 40, females at 50. We recommend infrequent lipid testing. Uh, and but every lipid test that we do should be so it should be put into a cardiovascular risk calculator. And again, James's um, team with the updated cardiovascular risk calculator is very helpful. And when you say infrequent, we're talking at most every five years and and you could easy easily justify only doing it every 10 years absolutely for the lipids absolutely in, in the in as adrian highlighted the biological analytical variability of the testing it doesn't change much we would say that you can you can risk calculate them more frequently if something were to change they became diabetic they started smoking that could, but just use your just use your lipid test that was done a number of years ago. Again, it doesn't change. We know that patients expect and wish for, and we have a lot of work to do to try and move those out infrequently. Uh, we would hope for 10, and we're not the only group. Actually, of all the groups that went through this and looked at the Europeans were the most frequent, and they actually said four years, and most other groups said five and or 10 years. So again, we're not new on this. Every group says, don't do annual lipids. Mm-hmm. We know that many people get annual lipids. Absolutely. So and, so and, I was just, and I was just going to add the one thing, oh, though. And, and some people yeah. will say, but I've seen a patient where it changed. And you're going, yeah, but most of that is probably just the variation that you're picking up. And it may be, maybe it was done at a different lab and all that. So it's, it's, you know, I think it's a very solid thing that you don't need to do these repeat measurements as we've talked about. But anyway, so go ahead, Mike. Okay. So yeah, in the KT tool, again, just to highlight everything that we've laid out for you already, uh, who to screen and when. Everybody, as Adrian said, everybody gets lifestyle. Lifestyle works irrespective of changing in lipids. Again, that fallacy of the treatment to target. Everybody gets risk estimated. And again, we have those three pillars or groups of patients. If the risk, if the 10-year calculated risk in a calculator is under 10%, we recommend repeat that calculation in five to 10 years. If the risk is 10 to 19%, we recommend offering or recommend suggesting that we offer a moderate potency statin. Again, having the conversation of a potential anticipated benefits, potential harms, costs, 
all this other stuff. Over 20%, we recommend offering a high-potency statin. And, and again, once you're on a statin, as Adrian had said, we don't we don't do CKs or ALTs unless clinically indicated. Again, get into that statin intolerance. And no further lipid testing, as again, our group and other groups recommend targeting your treatment, not treat to target. We also have some uh, a table on the different intensities of statins for, for clinicians. Um, and for example, a moderately potency statin would be a torvastatin 10 to 20 or resuvastatin 5 to 10. On the, on the flip side, we have some prescribing considerations. Again, relative risk reductions of CVD, cost, prescribing, sorry, sorry, adverse events, that kind of stuff. So putting it all together. And then we have, uh, Adrian had highlighted on statin intolerance, some potential ways forward on statin intolerance, separating out primary and secondary prevention. And finally, we have some frequently asked questions and uh, related to why are we not recommending treat to target and also some some links to decision aids exercise prescription from rx files mediterranean diet that we that we supplanted with uh, the va group and so just putting it all together we have a two pager that really i think it help enables clinicians to take all of this three years worth of work and simplify it into two pages to move forward in, in this uh, area and sphere. And then finally, for, for you know, we believe in patient handouts and, and trying to educate our patients. We also have a patient handout, which highlights very similar stuff in the KT tool uh, about Mediterranean diet, physical activity, and some just basic overviews of medications and, and ways of decreasing your risk. So that really is our, our guideline. And I think there's probably five key points. Adrian had talked about primary prevention, lipid levels every five to 10 years, starting at 40 to 50 until 75, risk estimate everybody. With a, with a lipid level, no ancillary markers, no biomarkers, statins for primary prevention, no targets, and secondary prevention. You could consider azetamide, PSK9s, very low certainty evidence. So that's really the three years, 30, 30 people, tons of work. That is the guideline in two pages or less. Yeah, great that, job, guys. Just, oh, Go I was ahead, just going to say, James, that's one of the things that is um, central to the peer groups work on guidelines is to get it down to we call it a one pager because it's front and back but really to be able to summarize everything you need from the guideline into a single page is kind of quintessential to what we mm -hmm. do and we've taken great pride in that for a long time and the amount of i always think the amount of effort the you know the 300 pages of systematic reviews and um, abbreviated systematic reviews to get down to a 10 page guideline to further refine it to two pages. It's the, you know, the, it's again, going back to what Mark Twain says, I apologize for the length of this letter because I didn't have time to make it short. We spend the time to make it short because we know how busy everyone is. And we, it's just a very important part of what we do to simplify things as much as possible. No, excellent job, uh, uh, Adrian and Mike. You, you guys sort of commandeered or, or kept everyone moving all the way through this. So congratulations on on getting this done. It was a, obviously a team effort, though, as you know, as you guys know. Um, so uh, anything else you want to add, Mike? No, that sounds good, James. Yeah. So uh, I think we'll just leave it at that. So thanks as always for listening. Talk to you later. Uh -huh.